Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. What's going on, guys? Welcome to another episode of Bro History. It's Henry Zamoda, and on today's show, we have... Retired now, Major Danny Sherson. Um, for those of you who don't know, this is the third time Danny has been on the show. Uh, Danny is a combat veteran. He served in Afghanistan and both Iraq. And uh, we had a pretty intense conversation today about a lot of different things. Uh, we spoke about his experience in East Baghdad. Uh, and then we dived into some other uh, historical topics. But uh, not only is Danny a, a combat veteran and a, a former officer, uh, but he's also a historian. He taught history at West Point, uh, just a very bright guy. Um, you can find his podcast, a Fortress on a Hill, and his book, Ghost Riders of Baghdad, Soldiers, Civilians, and the Myth of the Surge. So uh, on this interview, we kind of just started talking right away. Uh, didn't really start it at any proper place. So uh, I'm just going to start this right now. I hope you guys enjoy it. I wanted to ask you, I read that article that you wrote, um, The Folly of Iraq War Has Never Been Clearer. Uh, and I got to say, man, I was really moved by the story that you told um, about Alexander. Um, it it was, uh, I was angry. I was sad. I just felt like it was, it really helped digest the human you know, component of what, what's been going on in Iraq in the last like 20 years. And if it's all right with you, I'd really like for you to share that story on the show. Yeah, no, I'm glad. And definitely, you can definitely, um, include it, you know, um, I'll just jump into it and try to keep it brief. I, it's interesting that we're recording. I, I want to say it cause it's going to be released after we're recording uh, midday, uh, central time, uh, on January 25th. Right. And mm-hmm. so uh, we, you know, we've been shuffling the, the re- listeners, you know, we've been shuffling the time around, you know, all week, you know, because I've been keeping busy with some stuff. And I just literally minutes ago stepped into my apartment from uh, an anti-Iran war uh, rally in downtown Lawrence, where I live, um, which is a university town in Kansas. Um, it's uh, it's the People's Republic of Lawrence. It's like the only <laughs> liberal blue dot in a sea of just like just disgusting, like Koch brothers red. Um, that is Kansas. But um, so I was speaking at this rally. They asked me to do it. You know, I had a bullhorn and everything, which made me feel authentic, um, but also made my wrist hurt, quite frankly. Uh, <laughs> and uh, the rally was on January 25th. Right. And so January 25th is a, a, an international day of action. They're calling it. All right. Listeners can Google it. It was, you know, mostly in, in cities across America, hundreds, quite frankly, and then even some international cities um, where there was going to be rallies just to, you know, get the word out, not to go to war with Iran. I think in some ways we already are at war with Iran because of uh, executing a sovereign nation's uh, uh, uniform military and political leaders is, is, is just tantamount to war. But I guess what we were saying is no more war with Iran, right? No more escalation. Um and it was fortuitous, uh, coincidental, almost off-putting that January 25th was the day of the day of action and the day of my speech because 
um, what you're referring to in the article and what I talked about in my speech, which will be on my social media um, uh, later today, was that January 25th has like a specific resonance for me because it's the day in Iraq 13 years ago today, um, January uh, 25th, 2007, uh, in East Baghdad uh, at 9 p.m. Uh, local Baghdad time when the first uh, two of my soldiers um, were, were killed in combat and um, two of what would end up being uh, eight under my direct command before I stopped carrying water for the empire, although some of those were suicides, but I consider them battle deaths nevertheless. Um, I uh, had only been in Iraq for about three months uh, in and around East Baghdad, and I had already had uh, some uh, some pretty severe uh, wounded in action. Uh, uh, Sergeant Taj Ain was um, paralyzed. The uh, gunshot. Uh, through the spine. Um, he's still paralyzed, but he lived. That was December 14th, 2006. And then on January 20th, just a, a five days before the event, um, uh, uh, Eddie Faulkner um, got shot through the forearm by a sniper in uh, on a, along a road in East Baghdad. So things had already been heating up, you know, and this is kind of the height of the Civil War. This is just before the surge really kicked into action. This was the, the, this was the height of violence in Iraq, and this was um, when... The Civil War was really cooking off, and uh, so much so that we were, like, picking up bodies of, like, Sunni and Shia teenagers every morning that they would leave for us to find as, like, a nice welcome gift in the morning. And uh, it was just a bad time. And um, our enemy in East Baghdad, which is primarily Shia Baghdad, was the, the Mahdi Army um, and, and other offshoot Shia militias uh, that, that you guys are familiar with, but maybe some listeners aren't. And, um, you know, we were in the situation in the Civil War where both the Sunni insurgents, who tended to be more Islamist, in character, and then the, the Shia um, insurgents uh, or militias who tended to, they were somewhat Islamist, but they tended to be more uh, nationalist and just anti-occupation. They were both attacking us, right, as well as killing each other. So, like, America had, like, found the perfect storm niche to, like, just ruin a country and then manage to be the target for everybody, right, which was just the, it's just the nightmare of Iraq in, like, 06, 07, which is really a bad time. But um, our enemy was these militias, and uh, allegedly... Um, to some extent, truthfully, but I am also skeptical of some of the evidence that's been provided. Um, Iran was tacitly backing um, these militias um, through the figurehead, allegedly, uh, of Soleimani himself, right? The, the head of the Quds Force, um, IRGC commander that Trump just uh, assassinated, executed illegally from the sky in an act tantamount to war, as I said. Well, I, I should really hate Soleimani if that's all true, right? Because my two soldiers who were killed that day, and I'll get into some of the details, um, Alex Fuller and Mike Walsley, um, you know, they were killed by militias that were uh, tacitly in line with Iran, and, and, and Iran provided some of the technology and the know-how to create the very sophisticated IEDs at the time, the bane of our existence, which were called EFPs, explosively uh, foreign penetrators or projectiles, can't remember, doesn't matter. Um, they were basically copper slugs that fired like missiles and can actually pierce the armor of a tank. Well, uh, I was stupid enough to choose like recon, cav stuff, so like we had Humvees, you know, I was like cav, so you know, if, if it can pierce a tank, it turns a Humvee into Swiss cheese, right? So mm -hmm. we were terrified. I mean, it was so bad. I mean, so many limbs were getting taken off that, you know, guys were actually like, riding in their Humvees with, like, their legs and arms, like, spread apart, like, in an unnatural way because they were just hoping they'd keep, like, one limb um, rather than if their legs were together, they lose both. So it was bad. And um, 
you know, I worked for just like a typically mediocre and obtuse captain, you know, mediocre careerist, unimpressive, um, do whatever the boss wants, get through the tour with a good OER type guy. And, uh, you know, our colonel had like made this rule about like how many patrols had to be done a day and like how we had to like cover around the clock, like always having people in sector, like the very opposite of like what doctrine says, right? Because even then doctrine said that presence patrolling was like, you know, ineffective and, and, and stupid and every patrol should have a, you know, targeted purpose of mission, right? Um, but anyway, for all intents and purposes, we presence patrolled. So I had gotten uh, instructions to uh, roll out the night of January 25th uh, at nine, about 9 p.m. or I guess we left about 8 30 or so I don't really remember it's kind of a haze but um you know we had a curfew in place in Baghdad um the army did you know because we essentially had martial law like foreign imposed martial law which is like what we were doing and so there's no foot or, or, or street traffic right vehicle traffic uh, at night and so you know what this you know it, this ended up being kind of counterproductive though for Americans because um you know the most effective um detonation method um was the passive infrared laser, you know, because uh, you can't see them. And so what would happen is, I mean, you know, they no longer like had to press the switch and time it right or put like a, a relatively obvious pressure plate on the ground that you might be able to see. I mean, the passive infrared, it really never failed. And once your truck broke the passive infrared, it was going to take a direct hit from these EFPs if they were correctly placed. And by that time, they were getting some pretty good expertise. So, you know, the logic was, hey, look, driving at night is is crazy it's it's nearly suicidal right because we, we we can't find the efps we can't see the passive infrared you know and they and we and our armor can't stop them so it's a suicide pact but you know how the army is and so i tried to explain to my boss first rationally and then irrationally screaming at him back and forth i was a first lieutenant a new first lieutenant for less than two months and uh scout platoon leader and anyway we just like yelled at each other and he was like fuck you like the colonel said and i said and i'm tired of your attitude and you're gonna fucking go on this patrol or you're gonna whatever something bad's gonna happen you know you're gonna get you're gonna get like a you know a, a frowny face sticker or something or court-martialed i don't know it doesn't matter so um i was in a bad mood i was already pretty like dirty shirt dirty hat lieutenant disgruntled by then um and I was not in any mood for for small talk, but um, my favorite soldier, uh, Alex Henry Fuller, Alexander Henry Fuller, he's from New Bed from Massachusetts. Um, he's my favorite soldier, right? Like, I loved him. Like, you know, I knew his wife. Uh, he was 21. He came from a very, very horrible background, alcoholic mother. She's dead now. Brothers in and out of prison, drug dealers. He was a drug dealer uh, when he was young, before he decided to join the Army. And his sister was 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 doing time for, like, assault on a police officer in, like, a Florida pen. So, like, this this guy had nothing, you know. But the Army was his everything. And he loved it. I mean, he really did. I mean, he was going to stay his career. He never understood why people complained about the Army. Well, his wife was pregnant. She was very young. He was 21. I think she was 19, Stacy. And um, anyway, he's like, sir, sir. Like, you know, he's got this, like, Boston kind of like street accent or whatever and he was like yo yo sir you gotta you gotta show you these pictures and I was like not in the mood for small talk you know but Alex is my guy you know what I mean like I used to like buy him Burger King when he was broke you know because his wife spent all his money and you know, we were just very close too close right fraternization nearly um but yeah that's just you know how I was and I had more in common in my own background with kids like that than with most of my fellow officers so I really connected with him but which was really a bad decision ultimately but um yeah, so he showed me these pictures of Stacy, and he's like, "Oh my God, look how beautiful she looks! That's my baby in there. We're gonna—it's a girl. We're gonna name her Alicia because I wanted to name a boy Alex, but it's a girl, so I was gonna say Alicia. That's close." And I was like, "Man, that's great. You know, I was really happy for them." Um, anyway, we uh, 
we like mount the trucks up after I get my little you know, spiel, patrol brief. And, and, and Alex had been on my crew. He'd been my gunner for like the longest time, like throughout training NTC in the first few months in Iraq. But he had like recently been promoted to sergeant, like three waivers below average. Like he was so quickly promoted. It was ridiculous. It was the fastest promotion. And I think the squadron at that time to sergeant, but, um, he, uh, he he had begged me for a couple of months since he made sergeant to like let him be the dismount team leader, right? Like the guy who hops out of the back seat and takes control of the other small number of scouts who just sit in the back seat and like do the raids and shit, like kick in doors and pull security. He just wanted to be a badass, you know. So I eventually relented. I didn't really want to because he was a good guy to have on your crew. Plus, I just like talking to him um, in the truck. So he was in the lead vehicle, um, back left seat. Um, this guy Mike Balsley from California. Dad was a Vietnam veteran. Nice guy. Um, nice kid. He was relatively new to the platoon. He was the driver. And then uh, uh, Richard Dux Dazinskis uh, was up in the gun. He was from Chicago. And then Sergeant Riddle was in the uh, front seat. Well, anyway, um, a normal senior scout uh, was acting platoon sergeant. So he was in the rear vehicle as per SOP. And this like relatively inexperienced new staff sergeant was up front. It's not, I'm not blaming him by any means. I was a little nervous about this patrol. I didn't want to go on it. I didn't like the build the, the makeup of, of my patrol. I really preferred to have Damien South up front because he was like an IED, like he had the eyes of a fucking hawk for IEDs, right? He had the record uh, in the squadron for found IEDs at the time. He was very proud of that, right? So uh, senior scout right ahead of me, truck right ahead of me makes the wrong turn. We meant to turn on what we called 7th Street. We like renamed the Arab streets and instead he turned on 8th Street. 8th Street was a bad street. I didn't like the feel of it. Just had a feeling about it. You know, it was too wide, too much trash on the side road. There's things I didn't like and didn't like the positioning of the mosque. Anyway, um, sure enough, you know, I should have told him to turn around when I realized he made the wrong turn. Um, but I didn't for, for a number of reasons. Apathy, probably. Um, but I think mainly I didn't want to undercut a sergeant on the radio. Um, especially a new kind of, he was relatively insecure and, um, you know, just like learning the ropes, staff sergeant. So I just didn't, I was like, it'll be fine. You know, and like a few seconds later, it wasn't fine. Right. And, and as Tim O'Brien says, the great anti-war, um, Vietnam veteran novelist, he says, you know, like, you know, battle, like real combat, like blurs the line between fact and fiction. So like everything I'm saying now is like how I remember it, but it is hazy, you know, and uh, I bet you if the other guys in that patrol told it, they tell it a little different, but basically, um, uh, uh, I saw the blast before I heard it. Um, a lot of smoke. Um, it was a dusty street, a lot of smoke. And uh, the vehicle disappeared. Um, and then I don't know how long it was later, but uh, in fact, I was afraid we were going to run into it because I, I, you know, I knew it had been hit. I could just tell that it was bad. Um, but it like veered off the road and, and like came to a halt against like a telephone pole because. Uh, uh, Mike, the driver, was killed instantly by a copper slug through the brain, uh, right through the skull. And uh, anyway, we pull up next to it. Uh, I hear ducks screaming. It, you know, it, I hopped out. I was one of the first guys out, obviously. And uh, it was just, you know, I mean, a lot of listeners who are vets have been through this kind of stuff. But I, I think they would probably agree that, like, for some reason, like, you know, maybe you've seen 10 guys die or seen 15 bodies. But there's usually, like, one story or one event that just resonates more. And this is mine, maybe because it was the first, maybe because it was Al. But, um, you know, uh, open the door. Uh, Mike just falls out lifeless, you know, look of horror on his face. It was really gruesome and just penetrated skull. Really? He looked, he was totally intact. And then, um, ducks is screaming, like his arms hanging off and his like whole like left side is like literally shrapnel. Sergeant Riddle's fine. He's got like some shrapnel in the elbow and somewhere along the line, I'm the one who actually wrapped his elbow, put the dressing on it, which is not what a platoon leader typically does, but that just happened to happen. And then, um, I had kind of forgotten about Al, like, 
um, didn't even like think of him sort of because like there was no noise and you know he wasn't he hadn't fallen out no one had opened his door um, yet and then it just occurred to me like oh fuck like Al you know Fuller's in the fucking truck and I just yeah, I just looked in and I wish I didn't you know and I really never seen anything before or since like this and I've seen the aftermath of a lot of blasts including like car bombs and marketplaces you know um, but uh, yeah no he was a, ch a pile of like chop me like unrecognizable you know um, I wish I didn't have pictures of it, but I, I do because one of my buddies who took over the scene took them. I really should delete them, but nevertheless, it was a horrible thing, you know, and life kind of stopped for me in that moment, you know, and I know I'm rambling, so I'll bring it to a close, but, um, you know, Ducks ended up keeping some of his arm. I mean, pretty well deformed, but he lived and he's okay and lives in Chicago on a full disability and all, but, uh, you know, that's the moment and I wrote this in my book and it really pissed off a colonel who read it. Uh, who also taught at West Point in another department. In fact, he like confronted me about it and told me I was a bad officer. But because I had written and I meant it that like, you know, maybe not intellectually and maybe not necessarily in terms of like leadership, but like viscerally in some way, like that's the moment I stopped growing like as an officer and like as a person, you know, like it just time froze and, and, um, and I, and I just stopped, you know, like and in a weird way, like, in an awful way, but I think also in like a uh, paradoxically and at the same time beautiful way, like I, I've i always, I will always be and I have always been since like that same 23-year-old lieutenant who like was confronted with like true death of people close to him for the first time. And, and it, what only made it worse is that by then I knew that war the war was unwinnable. I, I don't know that I'd come to the realization that the war was um, immoral or yet that the war was immoral or that the war um, probably was like one of the great disasters in the first place that shouldn't have been waged. But I, I definitely by that point knew it was unwinnable or felt that it was. And I think I've been proven right by that. So yeah, all that just added up. And that was January 25th. So I told that story in much more brief fashion through a bullhorn today. And, and you know, it was about the Iran war because that's what the rally was. But my point was like, look, like, all this rhetoric from Trump and from certain fucking Republican veterans in Congress, you know, is that, oh, Soleimani's a terrorist. He's got the blood of Americans on his hands. That's why it was okay to assassinate. That's why it was okay to take this risk. That's why it was okay to, to create all this counterproductive energy that's, that's resulted from it. That's why it was worth risking an unwinnable war, a third unwinnable war, major unwinnable war after Iraq and Afghanistan and Iran. But my point was, like, look, there's no room for emotion in, like, strategy right in like strategy making there just isn't right so i should be more mad than anybody right or at least me and the other uh, 603 soldiers that allegedly iranian militias killed in 2005 through 8 but uh yeah that's that's the story i, I it, it forever affected my life um i don't ever let a january 25th go by without thinking about it um i'm happy to say that finally mostly uh I don't look for answers at the bottom of a bottle on January 25th anymore, but I can tell you I did that most certainly for a decade. Um, yeah, that's that's the story. And I, I think despite my ver verbose proclivities, I do think that there's a greater macro story to my m micro story because it does touch on issues of like not only the Iraq war, not only like leadership and what it's like to sacrifice and, and, and which kind of kids do the dying, right? Like poor kids often from bad families, but also just the way it relates to this whole Iran debacle and the, the possibility of this new war. So with that, I really am going to shut up and, and let you guys um, take this conversation whatever direction you all want. So I think a big part of the issue is that most people 
are pretty utterly without context when it comes to to the Middle East. You either have people who look at the Middle East and you know they're apathetic towards it. I would say that would be the majority of our country. They're just pretty more they're pretty much apathetic. Um, you know, the second group of people, they just see a bunch of pissed off Muslims and we have to protect ourselves from, from radical Islam. And then there's a third group that, you know, I think knows some stuff. Um, they know that there's Sunnis and there's Shiites and there's different countries that are involved. But this uh, third group will tend to associate every single act of violence from a Shiite as, as, um, as something that Iran was involved in. So I, I want to peel this back a little bit, and just for just for listeners who may not be like for first time listeners or uh, people who may not, may not be familiar with the sectar- sectarian divisions within Iraq and how Iran gained all this influence in Iraq in the first place, because in the eighties they were at war with each other. So. We've been trying to do, I mean, we've been trying our hardest to explain, you know, what happened after the invasion of Iraq. Um, so I was hoping that I was hoping that you can come in and, and kind of expunge upon this point that the U.S. empowered Iran and Iraq when they removed Saddam Hussein. I wrote in my book also and in several articles like who won the Iraq war, right? And I like the American invasion of 2003, of course, there's been a million Iraq wars, but like who won the 2003 Iraq war? Like what was the result? And it's a, it's a hypothetical, but also like flippant trick question. But the answer is emphatically Iran, right? Iran. I mean, the Iraqi people lost, right? Maybe a million died. The low count is 244,000 right now, right? That's probably closer to a million. Uh, Civil war broke out. So the Iraqi people lost, right? They still live in chaos, largely. It may not be quite as bad as it was um, when I was there. But, you know, ISIS was the outgrowth of all this. So the Iraqi people lost. We know that, right? The American people lost because we spent, you know, three or four trillion so far on on, on that war and 7,000 dead Americans and, you know, everything that comes with, like, the taking away of civil liberties when a country stays at war indefinitely. But so who won? Well, Iran kind of won, at least in a strategic sense. Um, why? Well, you know, first of all, I don't really buy the whole Iran is a rogue, irrational regime thing. I, you know, I think that they've actually shown an enormous amount of restraint in many cases uh, in response to certain American provocations. But, you know, if we accept the Bush and, uh, and, and now Trump and to some extent early Obama line that Iran is a rogue state and Iran needs to be contained – um, we know we had already sort of achieved that, um, and, and it was a very brutal way that we did it in the aftermath of the 1979 Islamic uh, Revolution and the uh, consummate, consequent taking of the 52 American hostages, right, in the Iran hostage crisis for just over a year they had them. Um, didn't kill any of them, by the way, so that, that's interesting. I'm not saying it's okay to take hostages, but like Soleimani's execution is like one more execution than Iran did of our hostages, but nevertheless, um, you know – we backed Saddam Hussein in his illegal, aggressive invasion of sovereign Iranian territory. And that, that was an existential war for Iran. It's, it's, it's the major pivot point. It's the major collective memory point in their history, in their, in their modern history. And um, we backed Saddam Hussein um, with like uh, intelligence, satellite imagery, uh, we, we, uh, loans, uh, and, we, and we also sold him certain materials. Uh, we and the British, and the British even more, sold him some materials that were uh, useful in making the chemical weapons that he used to not only slaughter um, tens of thousands of his own Kurds, but also Iranian soldiers in the trenches. I mean, this is a brutal war, right? About a million people die, about half a million on each side. 
Um, it's the it's the bloodiest uh, conventional uh, war uh, of the second half of the 20th century, depending on how one counts um, Korea and Vietnam. But it's definitely the most recent bloody conventional war. And, uh, you know, what happened when we didn't realize that because Bush apparently may not have even known about Sunnis and Shias, right? Like we don't know for sure, but there's enough accounts. There's enough insider accounts that make one curious. <laughs> I mean, I I struggle with that shit myself, and and just earlier today when I was reading your article, and and how it was talking about you know Sunnis and Shiites, but like where we removed Saddam, who was against Iran's, and then I'm trying to like put together like a like an infographic if you will like two tables right these are sunnis these are shias just to like look at it and then think about what happened in history and just you know when i when i do that exercise in my head i keep thinking why the fuck did we do that for a lot of like reasons can you like talk a little bit more about like who is who because uh, I think yeah, that's I struggle yeah. with that sometimes. You said Bush probably didn't even know. I can damn sure tell you that Trump doesn't know. Like, what's tell us all about that? You know, I mean, I'm not going to necessarily go back to the seventh uh, century and talk about how they eventually break down. But I mean, for for the most part, it's just a question of like who they you know Sunnis and Shias think that um, leadership of the Islamic world. Um, they differ about who should lead. Right, the Shias believe that it should be. Um, uh, familial legacies, right, of the prophet, and then the Sunnis didn't believe that. They believe this would be like an enlightened person or a follower of the prophet. Um, but about eighty percent of the Muslim world is uh, Sunni. Um, all of the countries that the United States uh, backs in the Middle East, right, like or has backed, like Egypt and Saudi Arabia in particular, or Jordan, they're Sunni countries, um, although they have some Shia minorities, but. Iran is the is the really the only Shia majority um, Muslim but not Arab state, um, and I'll get into that. Um, besides like Bahrain and Azerbaijan, but like in, in terms of important states, I mean, there's like 80 million people in Iran. It's a big country, right? It's like nearly it's like three times the population of Iraq. Um, the the issue is that they're actually I'm, I I misspoke. Uh, somewhat purposefully, there is another large Muslim country that is majority Shia, and it's Iraq. But see, Iraq was led because the British imposed a Sunni king after World War One, and because the uh, U.S. then backed, or at least tacitly backed, um, Sunni dictators, of which Saddam Hussein was the latest in a long line after the 1958 coup that overthrew the monarchy. Um, a Sunni minority of about 20%, led specifically by only a few key tribes, had run Iraq with an iron fist, you know, and kept the, the Shia majority in poverty and in second-class citizenship, but secular, right? So Iraq is this, like, secular bulwark. Saddam Hussein hates bin Laden, and bin Laden hates him even more, which is why the whole idea that 9-11 was an Iraqi plot was, like, a farcical notion, but... As all insiders knew, right? All the experts in the State Department knew. Just no one wanted to listen to them because they were too geeky for the Bush people. But um, so what happens now with the invasion of Iraq is that because Bush and American internationalists or interventionists in the Wilsonian ideal more generally, they pay lip service at least to the notion of majoritarian democracy, right? even though America doesn't have one of those because of this electoral college thing, but I digress. So um, if you had a mind that worked, 
okay, the invasion of Iraq uh, was certain to accomplish one thing and likely to accomplish another if the United States attempted to impose a democracy there. Okay, so the thing that was definitely going to happen is the Shias were going to run the government, right? Because even if the Sunni, even if the Sunni twenty percent and the Kurdish twenty percent allied, which they wouldn't, because they hated each other from the days when the Sunni um, Saddam like gassed the Kurds. Even if they were to combine, like they're going to lose as long as the Shias vote as a block, which they've tended to until recently, right? And so, what you're going to do is you're going to empower the once uh, disenfranchised Shia, and you're going to take power out of the hands of a Sunni community with a chip on its shoulder, a chip on its shoulder for two main reasons. Uh, one, they got used to ruling the country since 1919, right? So they're used to being the elites. So they're going to be upset. They're going to oppose the American intervention because it takes power and food, literally, wealth out of their mouths. But the second reason is because Iraq is an interesting little place. It's got a lot of oil. It's got a lot of natural wealth. The problem is that geographically, all, I mean, all of the oil fields are in two places. The south of Iraq is where most of it is, and the south of Iraq is almost completely Shia. And then the rest of the oil is up in like Kirkuk in the northeast, which is almost mostly uh, uh, Kurdish. So the Sunnis, despite having power handed to them by the British and a legacy of state you know, torture and, and, and state terror had maintained their hold on power. Taken in a rational view, the Sunnis had always been playing with a losing hand. The Sunnis have always been sitting on a losing hand because they live in the west of the country, which is uh, mostly uh, more barren and, and also, even in the more fertile areas, just lacks natural resources. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. So the Sunnis had every reason to oppose the American intervention. So the, the thing that we could be sure of is that uh, the Shia would take power, the Sunnis would rebel, and they would never accept American occupation. And so immediately, 
almost immediately, by the summer of 03, we're talking like three months after the invasion is over, there's a massive Sunni nationalist and then eventually morphing into Sunni um, Islamist insurgency. So that, that was certain. The second thing that was, was probable and ended up happening to any reasonable insider, analysis, expert on the Middle East was that a civil war was likely to ensue because of the dynamics I just described. And that, of course, is precisely what happened. Now, where does Iran fit into all of this? Well, Iran is the beacon of Shiaism, right, of Shia power in the Middle East. All the other countries mostly have Shia minorities or they're very small countries if they have a Shia majority. So Shias are traditionally powerless, right? They're disenfranchised minorities in their country. So it, the dream of Shia power, the dream of even Shia equality, has really only manifested itself to the average Arab, to the average Muslim uh, in the form of the Islamic Republic of Iran. So there has been some admiration for Iran. This, despite the fact, and this is important, that the Iranians – and I wonder how many Americans know this by percentage. Actually, it would, I don't even want to know because it's so low. <laughs> the Iranians are Persian. They are not Arab. Almost all the other Muslim countries of the Middle East are Arab ethnically. And uh, the Iranians are Persian. So there, there's an ethnic divide. So much so is this ethnic divide important that under Saddam – the foot soldiers, if not the officers, the foot soldiers in his army were majority Shia. And very few of them – there was a couple of exceptions – very few of them uh, chose the Iranian side. They loyally fought for their Arab, Iraqi constructed nationalism uh, against Persian Shia co-religionists. Last piece – that explains this very complicated puzzle, and I'm really trying to make it digestible, and I hope I am, although I fear I'm not. Um, there was a political elite among the Shia, the disenfranchised Shia, okay, an opposition set of parties, um, the Dawa Party and uh, the Supreme Council for Islamic Revolution in Iraq, which uh, SCIRI used to be. Skiri. Yeah, Skiri, right? They've changed their names a few times. Um, those two organizations, the leaders of them, fled Iraq in the wake of the Iraqi invasion of Iran, and many of them, most of them, moved to Iran, took the Iranian side, and uh, and even sometimes raised militias like the Badr Brigade of Iraqi Shia to fight for Iran. Now, they were not the majority, but they were the most organized and astute politically. So what happens when Saddam Hussein's government is uh, overturned and the Shia take power in the first national elections, first legislative in 04, um, I mean first local in 04 and then um, national parliamentarian in 05, uh, two things happen. Uh, the Shia come to power, of course. Um, another thing happens, the Sunnis boycott the election, right? They boycott the election because the insurgents told them to. <laughs> will kill you if you vote, and because they couldn't win anyway. So they refused to give even the veneer of legitimacy to this election, right? And so 
the Shia win an even bigger majority than they statistically ought to have, right, than they demographically ought to have. And who runs, who are the major political leaders and parties that run and win? Well, the ones that were already organized. And these are the traitors from the view, especially of the Sunnis, but even the view of many other Iraqis, the traitors who fought against their own country uh, in the Iran-Iraq war. Meaning that when guys like uh, Maliki, who becomes one of the strongman prime ministers, uh, and a lot, most of the prime ministers have been from Dawa, um, the Dawa party, when they take control of the Iraqi government, the, the web, the tentacles of Iran through their previous relationship are just built in. And so Iran in, by 05 has immediately gained a massive amount of influence, maybe even more than influence in some cases, over the new Iraqi state. So it's almost like there had been some sort of macabre conspiracy on the part of the Bush administration. There wasn't. They were just dumb. But it almost appears as though there was a macabre conspiracy to like hand Iraq politically to Iran on a silver platter, at least when it came to uh, political influence. And in fact, Iran has been the kingmaker, Soleimani in many cases, because he was more, he was as much a diplomat as he was a soldier. Um, handed Soleimani influence to such an extent that in some of the contested elections, specifically the very contested 2011 election uh, when Obama was president and right before we pulled our combat troops out, um, Iran was the kingmaker. They were the ones who decided these contested elections and, and, and brokered the compromise that put their parties in charge. And I know that means that Iran doesn't own Iraq. It's not as black and white as that. There's a lot of anti-Iran nationalists within Iraq, and, and some of them are even Shia. But the point here is you cannot understand the Soleimani assassination and what it means and what it augurs for the future without understanding that backstory. And so, yeah, it's complex, but the simple, <laughs> the simple like conclusion of all this is uh, – the American invasion of Iraq was one of the most foolhardy, let alone the illegal part, one of the most foolhardy strategic decisions of the United States in its history of foreign policy because the only like totally plausible and, and certainly tangible outcome was an increase in Iranian power and influence in the region. And, and, that, and that's the sick, crazy part that we're now picking up the pieces of as we speak. And, and to that point, I guess, uh, you know, what's important to understand is that Iran was mostly um, boxed in, as you write, you know, like they we had them for the most part contained. I mean, we had Saddam Hussein uh, to their west, you know, that obviously they didn't like each other. Uh, and then, you know, Sunni uh, majority or at least Sunni run in, our, in Iraq. And then to their uh, east, we had the Taliban uh, in Afghanistan again. They don't like each other, right? Uh, and then to the south, um, you know, they had Saudi Arabia, another Sunni, um, plus, of course, you know, all of our uh, uh, fleets of ships uh, in the Gulf. Uh, and uh, what was to the north? I forget. Russia to the north. Thank you very much. So Russia, again, not not very friendly. Uh, so they were kind of boxed in. And they, well, now people now people well, group them together, but. Throughout well. history, <laughs> I, would, I wouldn't say that they had a friendly relationship. And so, yeah, and so I, by yeah, go undoing, ahead, and then I'll comment on that. Go ahead. Yeah, yeah. Sorry. So, so by undoing their that that 
eastern you know side of the box you know the 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 iraqi uh the sunni led iraqi uh dictatorship uh we basically you know opened up pandora's box right for iran and and if you're like you know an anti-iran you know iran's the boogeyman kind of person or at least if you believe that uh then technically you should be on the side of not invading iraq right absolutely um that's why I say like it, this is the kind of shit that fuels conspiracy theorists. Like I have a, I have like my own theory on conspiracy theorists. Like one of the things that drives conspiracy theories is like bad behavior and absurd, uh, absurdly ill-informed decisions. Like I don't usually believe in conspiracy theories. I'm more of an Occam's razor guy. But but when when an organiz when it, when a when an administration like Bush or or, or Trump, um, when one of those administrations so misunderstands and so misreads like the strategic calculus, like the geopolitics in the region, um, that they actually hand a victory to their like sworn enemy, then it does like drive or, you know, manifest itself in conspiratorial thinking. But yeah, no, I mean, absolutely. Um, like let's like, even after we hand influence in Iraq to Iran, uh, one could argue, and I'm going to, that, the situation that Trump inherited regarding Iran was totally acceptable from a, a strategic, regional, and contain Iran standpoint, right? We're going to take it at face value now without even digging into that, at least for now. Um, we're going to take it at face value that Iran is evil. If that's true, I would argue that Trump actually inherited a totally acceptable situation that he then just totally blew up through his own insecurity, need to undo everything Obama did because, you know, you can't you can't do anything that the black Muslim guy did, even if uh, you know, <laughs> without a birth certificate or whatever. You, you know, you can't you can't follow anything he did, even even if it was rational, because, you know, he's he's your nemesis. But like Trump, through his like ignorance, laziness and insecurity. Has, has found a way to blow up this issue. So why do I say that? Why do I say it was a totally acceptable um, situation? Well, well, it's pretty simple, actually. Um, uh, to the north of Iran are the former uh, Soviet republics, of which uh, Russia has an enormous amount of influence, and Russia itself, quite frankly, right? Um, you know, I'm going to table that for a second, but let me just say, contrary to popular belief, Russia and Iran have a tortured relationship, okay? And I'm going to get into that. So they're boxed in on the north. Uh, on the east, uh, we have Afghanistan, which uh, at the time of you know Trump's inheritance still had you know uh, 10,000 American soldiers and, and just an enormous infrastructure of just like intelligence and um, you know air power and drones and special forces. And then of course to the south is the Fifth Fleet in Bahrain, you know, like the most important and powerful probably um, American fleet outside the Pacific, if not even more so. Um, and then, of course, to the West, you know, yeah, Iran had influence in Iraq, but, you know, we had our soldiers back in there because, you know, Obama went for round two, really round three if you count the Persian Gulf War. Um, and, and, and quite frankly, like Iran's influence in Iraq was, was, was behind the scenes. It was, it was, it was important, but it, it wasn't in the form of fighter jets and ground troops, you know, um, America still had a pretty good infrastructure in Iraq. And then, and to say nothing of the fact that there were also Americans in Syria and, you know, uh, Saudi Arabia is a bulwark to their, to their West, right? Cause Saudi Arabia has an army that 
um, and an air force that's that's pretty. T- if it's not as if it's not as large as Iran's, that's only because of a population differentiation. I mean, the Saudi army is more than capable of handling uh, Iran in a one, you know, in in terms of like pound for pound, because you know the Saudis have all of our like advanced equipment. You know, and, <laughs> unless uh, they're fighting against like Houthi rebels, in which case two brigades of them get captured by dudes who look like Jesus. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, and, and, and that's and that's a fair point that raises questions. You know, you make a good point because that raises some like serious questions about like the efficacy of like conventional military power in the Saudi hands. But and the ability to like suppress a nationalist movement or an ethnic insurgency, which I think is nearly impossible in the 21st century, if it was ever possible, which I don't think it really was, uh, not without uh, extermination. But, uh, you know, tr- and here's the big thing. The biggest piece, Obama had love him or hate him. And I have made like a career of criticizing St. Obama, despite the fact that I voted for him twice and canvassed for him illegally. Well, not illegally, but secretly while in the army in 2008. Like, you know, I've criticized Obama a lot, but hey, look, the greatest accomplishment of the Obama administration in foreign policy was the Iran nuclear deal. It took years of work, um, a lot of behind the scenes diplomacy. Kudos even to John Kerry, who you'll never hear me you know, uh, praise, uh, at least since he did the Winter Soldier stuff in Vietnam. After that, he became pretty much a monster. But, uh, you know, he did great work and, and all the underlings under him. Look, Iran was in a box. The CIA said that the Iran was following the nuclear deal. They couldn't get a nuclear weapon for 10 or 15 years at the least. Oh, but right? we can't trust our intelligence agencies, can we? Right. Isn't that interesting? <laughs> like, we only trust them when it's politically, uh, you know, useful, <laughs> right? Um, totally. Like, suddenly suddenly the Democrats, like MSNBC has brought on, like, every former intelligence official that lied to us and tortured people. Like, they're all heroes again. Like, they've all been, like, rehabilitated. You know, like, MSNBC, they're, like, born-again war hawks. But anyway. Um, yeah, that's super weird. In my opinion, but yeah, like Rachel Maddow's dead to me because of it. But um, <laughs> and and she used to be my girl. I used to, you know, never mind. I'm not going to make that joke. But um, he he inherits this situation that's totally workable. Iran is not a threat to the American homeland. It never was, and and it's not really even a major threat to American interests in the Middle East. I mean, not in any serious way. Um, they're in a box, you know, and. Uh, the, the biggest, you know, the original sin for Trump, of course, is pulling out of the deal, you know, uh, unilaterally, even though all right. of our European allies stayed in the deal because, well, the Iranians were following it. So in some ways, we actually broke the contract. I mean, right. kind of, I don't know if that's illegal, but it's certainly you know, unre- un- not recommended. And then, of course, just continues to escalate, you know, threats. And I can go through the list of things that Trump has done to threaten Iran I mean, and the crippling sanctions that were reimposed. But... Look, this situation is ridiculous. And, and, and who's the winner in this situation? Well, that's pretty easy, actually. And it gets back to my point that I tabled a moment ago. The winner is Russia, right? And again, so if, like, if you buy the Russia is evil story, and I don't buy that either, um, but we'll assume it, why in the world would you want to drive the Russians and Iranians into one another's arms? Now, it's become popular to think that they were always allies, Russia and Iran. But that's ahistorical, which is to be expected because the mainstream media like has less understanding of history than like your average like fifth grade student who's like coloring the stars on the map of like the American revolutionary battles. Like they don't know shit about history. Um, but there is a relevant history, uh, including the fact that in the 18th and 19th centuries, uh, uh, Russia uh, and Persia, right, as it was then known, fought a, a series of 
border wars, right? Most of which went poorly for Iran. And then uh, in 1943 or four, Russia invades northern Iran in order to like help protect oil fields and the British invade the south uh, to keep them out of like uh, Nazi hands or, or whatever. Or at least that was the ostensible reason. And like Russia doesn't even want to leave Iran. Like it, the Americans actually basically forced them out through like a diplomatic struggle in 1946. But like Iranians hated Russia for that, you know? I mean, they, they saw it as like a violation, which it was of their sovereignty. And they thought it was like the Russian bear bullying them again, which there was a history of that happening. So, you know, these are not uh, natural allies, right? They're natural rivals, you know, religiously, ethnically, and then just in terms of like geopolitical interests. So, you know, the, the best way to drive Iran into Russia's arms is to, you know, back them into a corner and, you know, Russia, which, you know, stayed in the deal and China too, uh, sees America as the aggressor, uh, Iran as the victim, which I think is actually an accurate, uh, description, even if Russia and China use that for their own sometimes nefarious purposes. But uh, yeah, that's the big winner, right, is Russia, and the minor winner is China. And so what are we doing, guys? That's like, you know, I just wrote an article uh, for Tom Dispatch that's been floating around the nation and the internet and even got some commentary in France. Uh, I didn't I didn't even bother reading or Google translating it because the French are sufficiently uh, liberal compared to us that I'm sure they love me. But, uh, you know, my article was called The American Chaos Machine because like what I've argued since 9-11, but what I particularly argue with regard to Iran, and, and it's based on what I've just been saying, is that every single move America has made in the eastern Middle East, right? Like in the eastern part of like the, the, the classic Middle East involving Iran and Iraq has been like so wildly counterproductive that like it's almost hard not to think that we were like trying to like shoot ourselves in the foot. And so that that's the point. And, um, you know, so if you buy the line that Iran is bad and if you buy the line that Russia is always being aggressive, then every Trump policy and, and, and the policies to some extent of his predecessors, especially Bush, all it really achieved was to empower Iran to a certain extent and then certainly to um, gain its sympathy and support among the uh, the other great powers on the Security Council of, with whom we have a tortured relationship uh, in this case, specifically Russia and China. Danny, what do you think of this? And I'm, I'm wondering if you agree with this. Um, a template that I try to uh, explain, like, the modern Middle Eastern politics between Sunnis and Shiites, I try to compare it to Europe in the 16th century between Catholics and Protestants and within Germany. Like, yeah, it started out as maybe sectarian differences, just like the Sunni and Shiite, you know, in terms of Catholic and Protestants, whether, you know, the difference is, should you have a direct relationship with God or should there be a hierarchy with, with bishop and a pope? Um, in the case of, of Islam, it's, you know, it's uh, the lineage of Muhammad. But it, it ends up being really, you know, what what tribe is really in power of the government, like, do you think that's a pretty good way to like comparing it with like the period of the Thirty Years' War? Is that a good way to compare the modern day Middle East? Yeah, I've made that point a number of times. I mean, um, people like my father, who is a big trumpeteer, um, but but people like my father and and the Fox News crowd, and, and I would say like a specifically um, a, a fairly large group of Americans who are relatively unsophisticated, but vaguely anti-Muslim and, and and they'll say things all the time and I'm sure you've heard this like oh forget the whole region like they're medieval they're backwards like you're never going to fix them 
Well, I don't really subscribe to that. Now, I do subscribe to the theory that you're not going to, quote, fix them, but I also don't think that America should be in the business of, quote, fixing anyone else, but um, especially when it has, like, the, its own problems, including, like, the greatest mass incarceration rate in the world. But, um, you know, what I often point out is, like, if you subscribe to a linear theory of modernization theory, like modernization development, whether it be for countries or, in this case, for religions, you know, what I like to say is, like, well, Islam, you know, kicks off right about 600 years after christianity right which which puts them right it, it, on the scale right of development assuming that the christian model of linear development well assuming it's even linear and assuming that all other religions follow that model it, it, if you assume all those things from a you know social sciences perspective they're basically in like the 15 and 1600s in christianity right give or take uh, a little bit earlier, but we'll say the 15 and 1600s. Well, why do I pick the 15 and 1600s? Because like you said, those are the eras of uh, Europe's religious wars. Um, you know, And the 16th century saw brutal, brutal wars, uh, mostly internal wars, like especially in France. They had a brutal civil war, right? St. Bartholomew's, Bartholomew's the massacre of you know Protestants, all that. Um, and then you have um, a divided Europe um, in 1618 through 1648 fighting a uh, – probably the most destructive uh, war – uh, for civilians um, in, in in modern European history, right until World War II, um, uh, Germany never really recovers its population. Um, you know, by some accounts, like about thirty percent of Germans died, mostly from famine, but that was war-induced stuff. You know, um, so what do you have, right, in Europe at that point, right? You have um, uh, several countries that are fairly homogenous by sixteen eighteen fairly religiously homogenous as either Catholic or Protestant, right? And then you have a few countries, Germany being the the the, the heart of Europe uh, geographically, but also in terms of being internally divided, right? Because like Germany, like Southern Germany is, you know, um, super Catholic, right? To this day. And um, Northern Germany is like super Protestant, right? And so the battleground for the 30 years war is, is Germany, just like I would argue the battleground for the, the civil war within Islam uh, that's happening is Iraq, right? And it makes sense because Iraq, like Germany, is the the biggest state that is internally heterogeneous and divided by sect by sect, right? And in this case, sect and ethnicity in Iraq, which just adds to the complexity. And so, what you had was, you know, it, it's remarkably similar. Like, let me paint a picture of how remarkably similar the war the 30 years war is to the the war that's waging in Iraq which i would argue is being fought really between Saudi Arabia and Iran as proxies okay um france is catholic by 1618 they've massacred their huguenot protestants and the ones that didn't get massacred in a near genocide moved uh, mostly to america actually and other places um as refugees so you got catholic france with all its armies, you know, um, allied with uh, Catholic uh, Austria-Hungary, or at that time the Austrian Habsburg Empire, right? Um, also allied with Spain, right? Which at that time had very close ties to the Habsburg Empire in Austria. So those three major states, right, um, are you know sending their armies into Germany to try to eliminate protestantism in northern germany which was beginning at that point to spread south um the swedes of all people protestant swedes 
who uh, were led by a guy named Gustavus Adolphus, who was a very, very effective military leader who took a country that had a very small population and, you know, developed one of the more effective armies um, in, in Europe at the time. Sweden was actually a major re regional power well into the uh, early 18th century. Um, sends an army to defend the German Protestants. So you got these German Protestant armies with like their Swedish proxy uh, backers and, and actual army backers, and they're fighting it out in Germany. And like I told you, like maybe 30% of Germans die in this like civil proxy war that all the great power is involved in. Well, like look at it today. You know, what do you have going on in Iraq? Well, uh, you have maybe not as many overt armies from the Middle East, but certainly uh, air power, intelligence – Spies, militias, proxy forces. <laughs> proxy forces. You got Saudi Arabia uh, and the UAE, right? The, the key Sunni states of the Persian Gulf, backed by an American army, right? Which actually did invade Iraq. Um, Are they like they're like uh, France and Spain. <laughs> in really? This that, yeah, that's exactly what I'm exactly what I'm saying. I mean, uh -huh. they're battling it out in Iraq, and then you know the Sweden in this situation, I suppose, is is Iran and. And it's remarkably similar. And so my point is, don't get so high horse, Mr. Evangelical American Christians, about how, like, you know, humane your religion is because we don't cut heads off. Well, not much. Uh, as much as the Muslims do, you know. It's like, dude, we fought a war where more people died in, in Germany in 1618 through 1648 than have ever died in Iraq despite there being a million deaths there. And it's like we've been through these convulsions as well. And, and 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 we and our our religion or the religion of the West, if you believe that we have a, a state religion, uh, the majority religion was equally bloody, and we're seeing it all over again. And it is a good way to understand the Middle East. Um, the thing that is an added uh, destabilizer that's that's a little different, I would argue, from even what went on in Europe, is that you have this country, this mega superpower, which. You know, there really wasn't one mega superpower at the time. You know, there was a much more balanced uh, world. Although I would probably argue Spain, uh, Spain and Austria and France were the stronger ones. But you know, you got this superpower from ten thousand miles away, the United States, like projecting power, and it's not even of the same religion. You know, um, that's 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 the that's the kink in the, in the thing that really makes this more dangerous in some ways. Um, add to that the fact that you know said world power, right? Said superpower possesses thousands of nuclear weapons and uh, said uh, opponent of that superpower who backs the other side, tacitly Russia, has an equal number of nuclear weapons and then add to that that a rogue state, the true rogue state in the world, here's where I get in trouble, right? This is when I get with the hate mail. Israel um, also has hundreds of nuclear weapons despite the fact that they have a policy of neither confirming nor denying that they have uh, nuclear weapons. Um, and, and, uh, that's interesting by the way, uh, if you'd let me digress for just 30 seconds, um, you know, first of all, saying to the world, like, Oh, I'm not saying we do. And I'm not saying we don't have nuclear weapons. I mean, that's like what a mobster says. You know what I mean? Like it, it's, it's mafia mentality. It's, it's neither confirm or deny. Yeah. It's insanity, <laughs> right? It's insanity because the whole world knows they have it. Um, here's the other thing. America knows they have them. I've read the recently declassified documents where Kissinger is like talking to like other people on the National Security uh, Council and then when he's Secretary of State talking to other people in the State Department, all these like classified memos where they're discussing what to do with all this intelligence they have that has been confirmed that Israel is developing a nuclear arsenal, a sizable one in the late 60s and early 70s, right? Now here's the thing. A decision was made and we have this on paper. 
to pretend, pretend that we don't know for sure whether they have them or not. Why would we do that? Some people would say it's just to give them international legitimacy. That's part of it. But there's something called, I can't remember what the name of the act is, that was passed. And this act of Congress, which is still statute law today, says that the United States may give zero military aid, zero dollars of military aid by law, to any state that is in violation of the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty. Israel is more in violation, and has been since the late 60s, of the nuclear non-proliferation regime than any state in the world. Yet, Israel then, and especially now, is the greatest recipient of American military aid. I'm getting right? really so, heavy um, Eddie Murphy meme vibes where he's tapping his head going like, you know, you can't violate international law if nobody knows you're violating international law. <laughs> Precisely, right? So we've got to pretend. I mean, it's, it's, a, it's absurdist at like a Camus existentialist level. But anyway, that's the point. I, I'm just arguing that what we have on our hands is a new 30 years war, something that resembles a 30 years war in the Middle East. Um, and it's, it's, it's only heightened by the catalyst of uh, superpower intervention and, of course, nuclear uh, weapons and the threat of, um, you know, uh, uh, species extinction. Uh, to me, the question isn't whether the human uh, race is going extinct. Um, the question, and, and Vegas really should have odds on this because I would love to bet on something so visceral and existentialist, but like there really should be Vegas odds on like, is nuclear, like, is like man made, like, nuclear folly going to uh, extinct the species or, or like, will it beat out climate change? You know what I mean? We should start betting on this, I think. Like, it would just be, to me, it would be like, I like that kind of like dark, macabre betting, you know? Like, like I was at a poker game the other day and I don't play poker and my, my buddies were saying to me, they said, uh, you know, now I'm just making jokes, but they said, oh, do you want to play poker? I was like, nah, I don't really gamble much, you know, I mean, at least not on, like, cards. I prefer to gamble on people, like, you know, like, you know, like, <laughs> like, like, will my mom squander the rent money this month? You know what I mean? I'm, I'm just kidding, but, like, you know, bet on people. But anyway, the point is, like, this is, um, this is a dangerous situation. Maybe we can pontificate or, like, project a little bit. So if, if there is a parallel between the 30 Years' War and the current engagements in the Middle East, how did the 30 Years' War end? And how can we relate that to a potential end for, you know, conflicts in the Middle East? The 30s, year, years war ends um, largely in a stalemate um, and exhaustion. Um, Gustavus Adolphus's intervention in, I believe, around 1624 um, comes just in the nick of time to save the German Protestants from essential annihilation. I mean, they were on the ropes. I mean, the the Catholic armies of uh, Spain and Austria-Hungary, in particular, um, had driven the German Protestants nearly to the Baltic Sea. You know, so Gustavus Adolphus comes in, and I mean, he's considered like one of the great heroes of Protestantism, like to this day. Like he was like the savior of Protestantism. I mean, arguably, without Gustavus Adolphus, like Protestantism is no is not going to be like the major strand of Christianity, and it's certainly not going to be um, not going to turn out to be. Um, the, uh, the the majority religion of the United States, right? So, like, the America is not going to be. I mean, then now we're getting into some really inter interesting counterfactuals, and you know, I'm just dorky enough to enjoy it. But like, one could make a cogent argument that without Gustavus Adolphus's intervention in 1624 and to save Protestantism in Northern Europe, America does not become a wasp country, right? <laughs> 
Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industry shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. That's, that's something interesting to think about, isn't it? Uh, but anyway, um, because Germans were the largest um, uh, immigrant group in American history. But, uh, you know, he wins a few battles and uh, saves the Protestants, but he dies. Like he dies like a couple of years later, like in a battle. And the Swedish army doesn't have quite as much effectiveness after his death because it's a small army and they didn't have as good of a leader. But, you know, he was able to push back, you know, the, the extermination uh, enough that, you know, the, the the war turns into like a seesaw battle of marauding proxy armies that devastate the German countryside, burning, slashing, murdering and raping their way and causing famines and like wiping out like the German population. Like I said, it never truly recovered. Um, another counterfactual is that if Germany doesn't lose 30 percent of its population in the uh, early half of the 17th century um, – you know, Germany, which was already and still remains the highest population country in Europe, has perhaps 30% more or more uh, higher population at the outbreak of World War One, which means its armies are much larger, which makes one wonder what would have happened in 1914. But nevertheless, um, this is all important stuff. And they fought themselves to exhaustion. Neither side could win. Um, neither side could win a complete victory. And so the war ends like many stupid wars. Right, like the War of eighteen twelve, like the Korean War. I could tell you others. Um, the war ends with the status quo in place, despite millions. I don't know how many died in the Thirty Years' War. It's millions, right? Died either in battle or of war-related causes. Despite a war, it really was like the first, like Napoleonic style, like Europe-wide war. You know, um, despite that fact, and despite the millions of deaths, the war ends with. The northern half of Germany, Protestant, about 60% of Germany being Protestant, right? Bavaria and the southern half of Germany and then Austria remaining Catholic. Um, and uh, that's it. And that and, – and, and that's – dude, Wikipedia Germany, like that's what it is today. Like the outcome of the 30 years war is that the war was stupid and shouldn't have been fought in the first place like most wars and it ended in stalemate. So what does that tell us for the Middle East? I think what it tells us is that this thing is going to run its course and the United States – and I don't think either Saudi Arabia or Iran has – and it's not just Saudi Arabia because if like the Saudi – if the Sunni side started like losing, Egypt would get involved. Like there are other Sunni like mega states that would get involved. But um, I don't think that either Saudi Arabia and its allies nor Iran has sufficient power – to say turn Iraq, you know, full full throated Sunni or full throated Shia. I just don't think it does, and I also don't think the Iraqi people would accept it. You know, I think Iraq would unite in a nationalist, actually, sort of way, um, in opposition to foreign entanglements or foreign occupation. But because I don't think either of them has the power, just like I don't think either like Sweden or Austria had the power to like totally win out in Germany. Um, you know, if I'm the groundhog 
seeing his shadow, I'm predicting, uh, or not seeing his shadow, I don't remember which which is which, I'm predicting six more weeks of civil war, you know, or, or, or six more generations of it. I mean, I think that's what's going to happen. I mean, it's the groundhog solution to uh, internecine regional warfare. And, and I really do think that the question isn't whether this ends in some sort of basic status quo ante. The question is how long it lasts. And one of the determinants of how long it lasts is the extent to which the meddlers, the worst meddlers of all, who only catalyze and make things worse, right? That being number one culprit, the United States, number two culprit, Israel, and number three culprit, Russia. The question is just how much worse do we make this global or this regional conflagration and how much more risk do we take of it going nuclear or something close? And, and, and the people who are going to decide that mostly live in Washington, D.C. and in like Tel Aviv. Um, Danny, let me Danny, let me ask you this. So uh, there's an article that I saw on the Middle East Eye saying that U.S. is seeking to carve out Sunni state as its influence in Iraq wanes. Like, what do you think the likelihood of them carving out a Sunni state within within Iraq is, or that would at least be in like Western Iraq? Yeah, in Western Iraq. Um, yeah. Do, does the U.S. want to carve out a Sunni state in Western Iraq? That's that's sort of the question, right? Yeah. Um, you know, or will they? Will <laughs> I mean, it's been a third option on the table for a long time, evidently, according to that article. You know, um, but they never like accepted it as a as a reality because you know as as you pointed out danny uh a lot of the resources a lot of the oil you know things like that is is in the east and the northeast you know um so the only likely place for a sunni state would be in the west yeah uh where there's nothing and they would need to be propped up by you know the west literally like uh, saudi arabia for sure but um definitely also the united states maybe israel um something like I mean, that get, get a hashemite king to take over <laughs> seriously like what whatever ha- hashemite king whatever happened to like monarchical solutions to problems you know those were the good old days just put a fucking hashemite king on there I'm so so pro- everything will solve itself i'm decidedly pro hashemite yeah i'm i'm really into that uh, um <laughs> look I, I there's some some interesting shit that you, like you just open in this can of worms that I think is valuable and I don't think people are going to hear on like any other podcast because like I've never had this conversation like I think we've gone in some really interesting directions now I may just think that because I'm a hyper deep geek but I, I think I'm right then again I always think I'm right but anyway um, you know Joe Biden of all people <laughs> Joe Biden of, of all yep. people yeah I'm just going to lead with that I'm just going to lead with smiling <laughs> Joe any conversation that starts with like fucking Uncle Joe is going to go off the rails. But um, Joe fucking Biden, of all people, Mr. I've been wrong about every single foreign policy decision since, like, you know, 1972. I gave a little medal to George Bush right. in the Eagles game. Right, right. <laughs> classic, classic move. Um, he said, he was one of the first people to say, you know, when he once he was against the war that he was for before it, right? Classic flip-flopper. Um once he was against the Iraq war, which he did turn pretty quick, I'll give him that, 04. He didn't turn quick enough, but by 04, he's pretty against it. He probably sees political gain in being so, but he's one of the first guys to say, or at least to repeat the Peter Galbraith theory, who was an author who wrote about Iraq early on. He wrote a book called The End of Iraq, just basically theorizing that the only solution to um, the Iraqi quagmire that we had uh, uh, you know, jumped into uh, with both feet, um, actually, I think we jumped headfirst, like, 
while on heroin into an empty pool. But nevertheless, uh, when we did that, um, he basically said the only solution is three states, right? Like a, like a division of Iraq into like a Sunni West and like a Kurdish North and like a vaguely Shia, like you know, central and sort of South East. Um, and on the surface, there's a lot of logic to that. I mean, the remember that Iraq is a completely uh, fabricated, constructed, uh, European imperialist constructed state, right? That doesn't exist until the final fall of the Ottoman Empire in like 1919, right? Like before that, there had never been an Iraq. Iraq had always been part of other like um, larger mosaic empires, right? Like it had, it had either been controlled by like the the Persian successor empire, Sassanid, and you know all that stuff, or it had been controlled by like the um, the the Western um, empires uh, first, like Greek and Roman, and then um, once Islam hits, you know the the Arab the Arab empires, which eventually were followed by like the Ottoman, the Seljuk, and then the Ottoman Turks. But um, so Iraq's always been like a pivot point, right? It's always been like a borderland. That's that's my point, right? Like 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 this shit isn't new, like. Um, Ever since Iraq is conquered in the mid-7th century by Sunni Arabs, okay, um, it has been a battleground between the successor states of the Arab Caliphate, which in its final manifestation, imperially at least, was the Ottoman Turks, right, who were Sunni. Uh, it has always been a battleground uh, with uh, the, the Persian empires and their successor states. So we're talking you know, um, the, uh, the, you know, the, the, the Darius and like the Achaemenid, uh, uh, Persians of like Greek lore followed by, um, the, um, Parthians and then of course the Sassanids. So, you know, it's always been a background, but, 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 you know, my, my point is on the surface, it makes sense because when the Ottoman empire ruled Iraq, as well as the entire Western half of the Middle East or, or everything from Iraq um, to the Mediterranean, they, they ruled it in a series of like, uh, I can't remember what they called them, but they were basically like provinces, right? They had another one name for them. Doesn't matter though, really. Um, and, and they had, they had different names. They, they were named after cities actually. Um, there was, uh, there was Basra was the province that Basra is a city in southern Iraq, but it, it encompassed essentially all of southern Iraq. And so there was like a, a local governor who ruled Basra, which was all Shia, right, mostly. And then there was um, Kirkuk, right, um, uh, province, which uh, mostly contained uh, the Kurdish part of, of northern Iraq. And so that had a little provincial Ottoman governor. And then there was um, Baghdad. But uh, Baghdad was a mixed city even then, but the Baghdad province, as it was drawn in the Ottoman imperial bureaucratic geography, uh, was was covered Baghdad, but then went west in, into what is now the Sunni heartland, right? So, it, so the Biden formula, uh, which he liked probably for its simplicity, um, on the surface makes a lot of sense, right? In other words, if the Ottomans had ruled it since you know the uh, 13th century or so, as three provinces like maybe they should be three states now the problems with that um involve what do you do with baghdad right it's like it's like saying what do you do with jerusalem right like anytime there's a mixed city like there's always like oh, oh fuck you know um that's one big problem because it's the biggest city but you know it's like the size of like brooklyn it's big um but then or actually it's bigger than that but then you have the problem of like 
Sunni, uh, the Sunni state, like I said earlier, having very little natural resources, right? So, okay, <laughs> here's where the conspiracy thinking gets involved. And again, I don't subscribe to this, but 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 think about it. If the United States wants to create a a tangible, sustainable Sunni statelet that can uh, serve as a bulwark against Iranian influence in southern and eastern Iraq, it would need to do one of two things, either completely prop it up with American power and money, which we've been known to do, at least until we don't need people anymore, or wipe away the straight line, literally straight line that Winston Churchill personally drew, according to some accounts, with a fucking red colored pencil, because, you know, England, red. Um, Yeah, like, wipe away the artificial border between Syria and Iraq because, like, eastern Syria, uh, at least not so much the northeast of Syria, but eastern Syria is like Sunni, right? It's pretty Sunni. Um, and oh, by the way, a lot of the tribes in eastern Syria, the Sunni tribes, have kin on the other side of the fake border. Same tribes in western Iraq, right? In Ambar province. And oh, by the way, what does eastern Syria have that western Iraq doesn't? Oil. Syria doesn't have a lot of oil, but the oil it has is all in the east, right? Or in some of the northeast parts where a lot of Kurds live. But eh, we could wipe out the Kurds pretty easily. We're good at that. Right? We're good at abandoning Kurds. It's like what we do. Um, you know, but this is all really interesting. And like, why does it start to get conspiratorial and like really, really disturbing? Because what I just described and what that article described as an alleged or potential American um, – uh, goal is the very same viewpoint, goal, and regional worldview of who? ISIS. What is the first thing ISIS did? What was the first propaganda video, or at least the first like widespread, spread widely propaganda video that ISIS made? I know because I don't do anything except read and just be a dork. But Can I like, guess this? Can I, was it the Sykes Picot, like an anti Sykes Picot? Yes. We're redrawing it. So, yeah, so the Sykes Picot agreement is the agreement that draws that line between Syria and Iraq. And of course, ISIS rejects it because they want like a Sunni mega nation, right? And they reject the Western imperial line. So, you're right. The first, see, you know your shit. You, do, do, you, do, you date, do you date or do anything social? Because it, <laughs> it sounds like you're like me. You know what I mean? Because, like, I'll tell you, I'm single now, and I have been for a while, but nothing gets the ladies faster than talking Sykes-Pico. You know what I mean? Oh, nothing, nothing, my girlfriend likes nothing more than when I talk about Sykes-Pico. She, oh, I she know. loves it. It's, it's a basically like great pillow talk, I, you know? You know? I, think, I, think, yeah. I think they should actually make, like, like a cologne and just call it Sykes-Pico. <laughs> but anyway, no, the, the first video they make is, is they literally put a sign up, and it says, like, Sykes-Pico, right? And then... They put this sign that they like made, like they were at a protest rally, like on if if I'm remembering this right, but at it's, a Kinko's it's, it's vaguely correct. They put it on the berm, like the artificial berm, like the minor berm that divides Iraq and Syria. And they take a bulldozer and they like bulldoze through it. And there's of course this is very symbolic, of course, like most people in the West and like idiots like Trump and Bush and their lackeys, they don't understand what just happened, but like the message is clear. And so what's interesting is if America does desire a Sunni statelet, um, while they certainly don't want it to be quite as Islamist and quite as anti-Western as the ISIS model, 
in many, many tangible and, and really important ways, it's the same strategy as ISIS. And like, once you realize that, that's when you start to realize the rank absurdity, right, of American um, policy in the region more generally. Wasn't there a policy paper written in the 80s? Um, it was called like Reinventing Israel's uh, uh, Foreign Policy in the 80s where they were talking about balkanizing a bunch of these countries into into like these autonomous regions by like Kurd Kurds, Shias, and Sunnis. Israel has like a a complex of course right like any country that was like invaded existentially and at, at its birth although obviously israel does bear some of the responsibility for that but i mean the reality is i mean they really were invaded from them from their birth and there was an existential threat to the jewish state and you know of course then there's another war in 56 and then another in 67 and 73 so those those were the last of the major uh, conventional wars of like arab coalitions against israel but you know israel's got a complex and the complex is is the one that a lot of small states that have mean neighbors right or unfriendly neighbors have which is it's 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 the existential fear of of being demolished now that's not really um a viable fear anymore it's not really like particularly logical because like syria i mean israel's army is just so damn good and um you know and, and have, they have so many nuclear weapons that, that they can't possibly be exterminated you know but um my point is though that um they've always been looking for different solutions to their supposed problem of being in an unfriendly neighborhood, right? Um, and and one of the ideas, and it's really based on old thinking, I would argue. Um, it, it was a really flawed policy paper, and I think it was the 80s, long after it didn't make any sense. But Israel sucks at foreign policy. Like, don't even get me started. But, um, like, strategic thinking in Israel, like, it, you would be better off polling a room of kindergartners about what Israel should do. Like if you provided the two options, like either we invade Lebanon in 1982 or we don't. And instead of letting like Israeli professional politicians and voters decide, like if you just polled like a kindergarten class on an Indian reservation in South Dakota, like you have a better chance of getting a good outcome. Anyway, <laughs> nevertheless, that's like, that's true. Like I think I'm empirically correct about that. Um, anyway, the thinking was that the biggest threat to Israel they still thought the biggest threat to them was that all the Arab countries would like combine and invade them, right? But that was an outdated fear because of the um, proven effectiveness, massive mismatch effectiveness of the Israeli army, right? And the fact that by 1968, they have a nuclear weapon. I think it's 68. Um, and then by then they have maybe 100 in the 80s. So irrational fear, right? But a lot of countries are driven by irrational fears, right? We have to invade Iraq because mushroom cloud. That's an irrational fear, right? And it's also a lie. But um, so what's the best way, assuming that's a rational fear, which the Israelis at least thought it was, or the people running it at the time, right? And this is, um, this is a bipartisan thing. This is labor and Likud. I mean, even though Likud is worse, um, that being the generally more leftist mainstream and the generally more rightist uh, Israeli parties, although they've all drifted so far right, much like American politics. But anyway, so... The best way to uh, offset that threat is to balkanize, to tear apart internally um, many of these powerful or presumably powerful Arab states that surround Israel, right? And, and, and so what do you do if you're Israel? Well, you do a lot like what American CIA does because like 
the Mossad learned from the CIA and then like took it to another level. Like these motherfuckers know how to destabilize a country. You know what I mean? They know how to assassinate motherfuckers. They know how to balkanize a the country. They know how to start civil wars. Like they learn from the best us. They're and arguably they t- better at us at it than we are now. Oh, they, they're so much better. And here's last digression. Well, not the last, but on this point, um, the difference between Trump assassinating Soleimani and Israel having assassinated Soleimani is that Trump immediately went on TV and bragged about it. Motherfucking Israel would have sent flowers. Okay, to the funeral. That's because they're some fucking badasses, right? I don't like them, but they are some callous motherfuckers. You know what I mean? They're the guys. They'll show up at your funeral with a fucking with a grieving card and be like, "Oh, really sorry for your loss," even though they did it, right? That's the difference between Israel and America. Anyway, um, so if you're Israel, you argue that um, two things are going to make you safest. Uh, One is, uh, and this is what the policy memo you brought up basically says. Number one, you take the countries, the Arab countries that have the most significant uh, intra-sectional, right, or like uh, uh, religious sects, uh, the most division, and and that have the largest minority populations, right? So now we're talking what Syria and Iraq, or the or the real big ones, right? And so because Syria is like a goddamn oh, and Lebanon too, all three of those countries have major Shia. Uh, well, uh, Syria doesn't really have major uh, Shia populations. They have uh, uh, what are they called? Um, what the fuck is Assad? Um, Alawites. Alawites. Yeah, Alawites. Some Shia think they're Shia. Some don't accept them as Shia, but they're Shia. Some call them. They call them like crypto Christians. Yeah, they're really weird. Actually, I think they're really an interesting group. But they're very secretive too. But anyway, for the most part, they're identified with being Shia because they tend to um, ally themselves with like Shia groups, both in Lebanon. They're Shi-ish. Shi-ish. I like that. I like that. So anyway, they love Jesus a little too much. More th- <laughs> yeah, they're 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 a little too uh, too little into JC, but um, they're also into some other weird shit. But anyway, uh, Lebanon. And um, Syria, which touch you if you're Israel, and then Iraq, which doesn't touch you but has taken part in some of the invasions of Israel and, and was thought in the 1980s to have the most uh, modern and effective conventional army in the Middle East, right? So you t- the first step is you take those three countries and countries like them and you sow disunity and sectarian division within them internally, right? You almost like try to set off a civil war, which um, happened – in Lebanon from 1975 to 1990. I'm not going to argue that Israel started it, but Israel helped instigate it and then through its invasion and extended occupation from 1982 to 2000, certainly took it to another level, the civil war. So it worked in Lebanon. Uh, Syria didn't didn't really work in because uh, uh, the Assad family was able to rule with an iron fist, but, uh, but Israel got what it wanted in Syria uh, starting in 2011, and, and I'm going to make a really interesting point about that in a second. And then Iraq, you know, it wasn't really able to because, again, Hussein held it together, um, but, uh, but eventually America helped Israel by destroying that country. So that's the first goal. Now, the second thing you do, because that doesn't cover every country, I mean, what are you going to do with Saudi Arabia? What are you going to do with Jordan? What are you going to do with Egypt? And Egypt's the big problem because they got a big army, right? Even though they got fucking waxed by the Israelis like several times, but uh, but but, is, but Egypt did give them a scare in '73. So um, what you do with those countries is you know they're more homogenous, so it's harder to sow like a civil war in those countries between Sunnis and Shias. But what you can do is instigate or at least support an interregional, right, an interstate, you know, T E R, right, an interstate Sunni Shia um, division. Uh, where like 
Iran is at the throats of Iraq, for example, or, or and of course Iraq at the time was supported by all the Sunni states, right? Saudi Arabia, UAE, Kuwait, even. Um, so they did achieve that, 1980 to 88, right? The Iran-Iraq war. So like both Iran and Iraq stopped being major threats to Israel when they're fighting an existential war to the fucking death that kills a million people, right? Israel wins, so that worked. And then America comes in, and like in the Bush years, and like Bush was like. The dream of like Israel, Israeli rightists, like he was their dream guy until Trump. And then they were like, man, we thought we had it good with Bush. This Trump guy, you know what I mean? Like he's taking it to a whole other level, you know, like he wears lingerie every night. Like the relationship is just getting better. Anyway, like this is what went on. Now, if you don't buy my analysis of this, of this paper, and if you don't buy the extent to which I truly believe that Israel has worked hard and even achieved many of those goals and in fact taken them to an even higher level, right, of more intervention today. If you don't believe that, then I have one point that I think proves that I'm onto something. And it is this, the words of Israeli politicians and generals themselves. So Syria remains in the grip of a civil war, although Assad has almost won it by now. Now, and, and by Assad winning it, I mean Iran winning it and Russia winning it because Assad survives largely because Iran comes in first to save them and then and Hezbollah, which is an Iranian proxy, and then finally Russia. Here's the thing. ISIS <laughs> is the greatest threat to like the world in terms of like terrorism, transnational terrorism, at least according to the analysis, right? So let's assume that's true. Israel should hate ISIS, right? I mean – they cut people's heads off. They believe in an Islamic caliphate. They certainly don't have a lot of love, theoretically, for Israel. But there has been an almost tacit alliance between the two. Now, alliance might be the wrong word, but they've sort of agreed not to fuck with each other. Let me explain. There was a time when ISIS even had enclaves in southwestern Syria. And southwestern Syria happens to touch Lebanon and Israel. And yet, there was never a cross-border incursion, right? No major cross-border terrorist attacks of ISIS against Israel, right? They were more focused on fighting the Syrian regime. Now, some might call that tactical. I don't buy that completely because you think that if they were such millenarian, right, eschatological, end-of-the-world Islamists like they claim to be, you think they'd want to take a few pot shots at, you know, the Israeli Jewish state that like controls the third holiest city in Islam, right? You think so, but they didn't. And then it gets even more interesting when you look at the Israeli side. When Iran intervenes to save Assad, at least until Russia could get in, like they kind of plug the gap until Russia could really save him. Israeli generals and Israeli politicians, both in and out of office, and the ones who were out of office were former people who had been in office and were very influential in their version of like the think tank world, right? Their versions of like the Atlantic Council and the Council on Foreign Relations. Several of them, and they're worth Googling and maybe putting in the show notes, said things like, if we have to choose between Iran, meaning Assad and his Iranian allies in Syria, and ISIS, we choose ISIS every time. Dude, I'm paraphrasing, but that's almost a direct quote. And like several dudes said that shit. So you've got this situation where Israel is like, 
yeah, we'll deal with ISIS. Like, we're cool with ISIS. Like, if it, you know, we're, as long as Syria stays unstable, the, we're, in other words, we'd rather an unstable grips of the throes of civil war divided Syria that pur- purportedly can't threaten us. We'd rather that, even if it means that ISIS continues to exist. And so for a moment there, the United States and Israel were actually working across purposes, which is pretty rare. And in that same moment, and this is where I think Trump was right about some shit. I know, I know. My liberal Whoa. friends are never going to accept me. Here we uh, go. Yeah, I think he was I think he was like accidentally right. But I think he was right about some shit like early in his regime when he was like talking – and I did call it a regime, which I think is appropriate for Trump. <laughs> but so. uh, he was saying stuff like, look, in Syria, like us and the Russians – kind of have the same enemy in some cases. I know that wasn't completely true, but there was some truth in it. And there was this weird moment when we were kind of really wiping the floor with ISIS finally. And then when Russia had finally stopped just bombing the rebels and actually started like attacking ISIS a little. Um, in this rare moment, which I think was a profound moment, right, in terms of being instructive and illustrative, where America and Russia were more on the same team than America and Israel, um, briefly. I'm Jane Perlez, longtime foreign correspondent and former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. I've been a foreign correspondent in lots of places, Somalia, Indonesia, Pakistan, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I mean, China is not dropping anti-democratic paratroopers into Montana. But of course, we did see things like the weather balloon slash spy balloon riveting the whole country for a week. This is Face Off an eight-part series in which we'll take you behind the scenes to key moments in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. We'll speak with a diplomat, a spy, a tech reporter, a U.S. admiral, even Yo-Yo Ma. Plus, my pal and noted China historian Rana Mitter joins the conversation. We'll look at what's driving the two nations apart and explore whether anything can help bring them back together. Face-off launches April 9th. Which never happens. But no, now we're back to doing Israel's bidding. We're back to like their agenda of like alienating and, uh, you know, starting a war with Iran. But uh, I went on a really long treatise there, but I'm so glad you brought up that memo and its implications because I'm telling you, like, I don't know if we could find out how we're going to find a way to, I know you're getting more listeners now, which is great, but like this conversation is not just because it's my voice and I love my voice, which is true, but this conversation really needs to be like publicized and spread widely because, you know, I listen to a lot of podcasts. And I, and I do my own. And uh, I've never had this level of discussion on the implications of, like, Israeli strategy and some of the other stuff we talked about. So with that, I'm going to shut up again. <laughs> that uh, that uh, there's, there's a lot of, um, you know, Israeli ministers and, and generals I, I think have said that the article I just brought up right now, um, it's from the Times of Israel, which I think t- the Times of Israel is more of a right-wing outlet over there right you have Haaretz which is more of the left wing outlet isn't the Times of Israel more right wing yeah I think it is now that's not the one that's owned by uh, Sheldon Adelson is it Um, uh, I don't I'm not sure if it's a Jerusalem Post that he owns I think it is yeah nevertheless I think you're right I'm gonna google it right now and just see what the slant on Times of Israel is but go ahead Moshe Moshe Yalon said I would prefer Islamic State to Iran and Syria but I've heard like other comments like this as well Mm -hmm. Mm mm-hmm Not sure if it's directly from Netanyahu. I mean, Netanyahu has said some other ridiculous things, like blaming the Palestinians for the Holocaust and stuff like yeah. that, which is beyond just absurd. Wait, that's not true. So many they, didn't, they didn't do it. 
Well, da- oh, we have geez. we have a Palestinian right here, Danny. <laughs> I didn't do it. <laughs> Not Quilty. God damn it! You and your people. Um, you have a lot of blood on your hands, sir. No, uh, <laughs> uh, actually, according to this site, it says that uh, um, Times of Israel, and I think this is even more instructive, guys. Is is at least on two sites that I've looked at now uh, is considered left center. Now, left center in Israel. Is, is like, like right. <laughs> fascist. It's fascist yeah. in like Europe. But um, look, if a left center, purportedly left center paper, is like publishing those comments about preferring ISIS, what the fuck do you think Adelson's paper says? You know, or the really right wing ones? I mean, it, it just I think it's demonstrative of the, like the bipartisan, the increasingly bipartisan consensus in Israel towards forever war and antagonism with Iran. But you know, also just the odd odd like just relationship between goals of israel and goals of isis i mean and and please listeners like don't start blogging about how i said that israel and isis like are a team i'm not saying that oh they will no they will they always do (laughs) they they always do it's too late it's too late it's too late i'm gonna get another uh piece of like actual snail mail hate mail in my uh in my box that's written in lipstick again. You know, it's, 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 it's necessary. I, I, I say that uh, as a joke, but one of those jokes that's like, you know those jokes that are a joke but because they're completely true? Yeah, that happened. Yeah. That happened at least once. Yeah. Lipstick, really? Uh, something it looked like lipstick, yeah. Crayon, uh, maybe. No, 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 no. Too, too <sighs> greasy. Too greasy for crayon. Mm. Unless it was like a, maybe like... Pastel, maybe? Pastel, but it was clearly yeah. written by a really, really like deranged person, you know? It looked a little bit like a hostage note. Like, my first instinct was, like, someone's got my 11-year-old, you know? I felt mm-hmm. like Charles Lindbergh, you know? I was like, fuck, got ourselves a hostage situation. Wow, that was a, that was an anachronistic joke, wasn't it? Okay, go ahead. Um, that's, uh, do you know Senator Richard Black? Um, do you ever hear of him? I don't, you know, I know a lot of senators. Where's he from? Who does he? He's from, he's a, he's state a, state, senator, he's a retired yeah. state senator out of Virginia. Oh, no, and... I don't. Yeah, no, I thought you meant, like, a U.S. senator. No, I don't think I do. No. He went to Syria um, back in 2000. He made a couple of trips to Syria, and he met with, with Assad before Tulsi Gabbard did it. And he did it to show his camaraderie, camaraderie and with, uh, with Assad in the fight against ISIS and some of the other um, radical groups that, are, that were over there. And um, I interviewed him. I interviewed him probably about maybe it's just like about eight months ago at this point, I think it was in April or May of last year. And um, I was talking to him about it. He, I, he said, and he's a right-wing guy, very conservative, a very, very, very conservative um, state senator in Virginia. Um, you would probably disagree with all of his domestic policies, but he's also anti-war. I would kind of look at him more of a, as a kind of like a Buchanan type, his analysis was that, you know, Israel was playing a really dangerous game because I would fear that you'd have these ISIS types linking up with Hamas. And if you think Hamas is dangerous, if they link up with ISIS, that would be a lot more of a threat than any Shia group or any, any you know, Hezbollah or any, any group outside or any other country outside. So I was wondering if you thought of that. That just came to mind. Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, I, I think that. The only foreign policy that's more counterproductive than American foreign policy is Israeli foreign policy. You know what I mean? Like Israel's like the logical, like absurd 
ex- like c- conclusion of like the American, um, you know, off the rails foreign policy. I mean, that, that's what Israel is, right? I would argue like that defines their foreign policy. But um, look, this is a devil's bargain. It was from the start, you know. This is really like tacit recognition or leaving alone or in the case of Saudi Arabia, almost alliance between like Israel and like um, Sunni Islamists in the form of like ISIS and Newsroom Front in um, and Newsroom Front, of course, is the Al Qaeda franchise. They've renamed themselves, but I can't keep up that shit uh, in Syria. And then they also now are like really they're really close with Saudi Arabia. Right. Which is odd because like Saudi Arabia, like cuts girls heads off for sorcery. So like they're pretty Islamist, um, which is usually a good way to know just how Islamist you are. Like, when sorcery is still punishment, punishable by beheading, like, this is an Islamist state. But anyway, I mean, I, this is a dangerous game. I mean, it's going gonna, it's gonna to backfire, right? Uh, it's a Faustian bargain, ultimately, because you're absolutely right. Like, this kind of behavior, just like when we backed the Mujahideen in Afghanistan, because I'd argue there's a lot of similarities between us backing the Muj, who become the Taliban in Afghanistan and Israel, like, backing, like, Saudis and their proxy forces and then, like, uh, tacitly leaving alone, like, Nusra and, and, and ISIS and even encouraging them to some extent. Um, that's going to backfire. Like, <laughs> Chalmers Johnson, I think, was the guy who first wrote the book Blowback back in, like, 2002. He's dead now. The world's a lesser place without him and George Carlin. But anyway, um, I don't think anyone's ever grouped those two guys together, but I just did. Anyway, the point is, this is blowback. I mean, Israel's going to pay for this, you know? Hamas is Sunni, even though they work with uh, Iran in like a relationship of convenience like you know this is a this is this is a dangerous game and you're absolutely right like again Israel is stuck in the false fear that their biggest threat um is is interstate invasion right by powerful Arab states when in reality the biggest threat to them is um you know, uh, nationalist and Islamist alliance of Palestinians and their supporters, um, uh, you know, sowing chaos within Israel. I mean, that's the real threat. Um, so anyway, you know, I, I think that's the case. Um, I, guys, I've, I've got to run. Um, my kids slept a little later than expected. Um, so I was able to continue the conversation because it was so damn good. But, uh, but he's up and uh, I got to go get him. And I know that's like a not a great ending so if there's something you want to like end with for editing purposes like that's great but i do have to dip if that's cool <laughs> no that's totally um, fine <laughs> no that's that's completely fine man I, we, we really appreciate you giving us so much time today um just what what can we plug like what what do we yeah. need to plug right now what are you working on obviously we have your we have your book um ghost writers um the myth of the surge um, you know, you write for antiwar.com, truth dig, uh, what else do you want everyone else to know to find your stuff? Yeah. You know, so, Hey listeners, you know, like you know, Google me S J U R S E N. And you know, my week, I do a lot of writing for a lot of places. My, my weekly columns are, you know, usually on Monday at antiwar.com Thursday at truth dig. And then, um, check out my podcast, fortressonahill.com. And then the last thing is, um, uh, I've got a new website. I finally paid a web developer to like make me a website. Uh, it has my contact on it, links to everything I've ever written, every video I've ever done, and it's skepticalvet.com. Uh, pretty easy to find. Uh, that's my Twitter handle as well. So yeah, check it out. There's a contact me button. If anyone's interested in me doing speaking engagements or coming on a pod or or heck, just want to read my stuff, that's the place to find it. So yeah, like seek me out because I need a lot of positive reinforcement. <laughs> well, Danny, I mean uh... – I, I can't tell you how much you mean to this podcast. Um, it's, uh, you know, you've really helped kind of 
push the direction of where it was going just by our conversations and by your work and, and what I've read of yours. And um, I just really appreciate what you're doing. And, and, and I just hope you know how much good you're doing. I appreciate that, guys. And I, you know, I, I, I like to think I, I like to hope that I am. And um, I really am glad you guys are having success on the pod. And uh, hey, let's do this more regularly. Because I mean, these are I don't they, they, I do a lot of podcasts. and This is like one of the best conversations I had. So let, let's do it again soon. Let's uh, let's not wait so long till the next one. Yeah, I'm. Whenever you want, I I will. Yeah, doors we, open. We want you. On, <laughs> we want you. We want you on as much as possible, okay. man. Because our these 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 shows are always just incredibly well received and they're just always really interesting. But I'll, let's. I'll let you go, um, Danny. Thanks a lot, um, Danny Abdul Jabbar. What's up? How's it going? I'm doing great. All right. Let us say our let us say our goodbyes. All right, guys. I'll catch you later. And thanks again. Bye bye. <laughs>